0: Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Father, we pray you bless your word today, Father. Lord, you know every heart represented here where each of us are at with you. And I pray that in the way that only your Holy Spirit can do through the scripture, that you would speak to each individual in here in the way that they need to hear from you this day. I ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, You may be seated. The Bible commends godly zeal, but it warns us about having zeal without knowledge. For example, in the 5th century, a a man named Simon Stelitus, who lived 36 years atop a 50 foot pillar, spending his time in contemplation and prayer. Well, when a Frenchman by the name of Anatoly heard about this, he was so impressed that he too determined to go the way of isolated denial. But the weather and the living conditions being what they are in France, and the fact that he didn't have a 50 foot pillar, he had to improvise. And so he donned a simple garment, set a chair on top of his kitchen table, and then sat down upon it. All was well until his family returned home. They thought he was nuts and they told him so. In fact, they succeeded in making his life so miserable that he finally decided to quit his vigil. He said, quote, I soon perceived that it's a very difficult thing to be a saint while living with your family. <laughs> I now see why Simeon and Jerome went into the desert. But this morning, we're going to see the perfect example of Jesus being the example of having true godly zeal. Look at verse 11 with me. This beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up. To Jerusalem. In verses 11 and 12, we are told that Jesus turning the water into wine was the first miracle that caused his disciples to believe in him. Now compare the first miracle of Jesus, the grace bringer, with the first miracle of Moses, the law bringer. Moses turned the water of the Nile into blood, which speaks of judgment. Jesus turned the water of the wedding into wine, which speaks of joy. So too, if you approach the word legalistically, it will become like the Nile. You'll bloody yourself and everyone around you. But if you look for Jesus in the water of the word, you will find the wine of joy producing such winsomeness within you that other people will be drawn to you. Now, this is an important section because it reminds us that every miracle Jesus performed had a purpose. It was never simply a display of power just to display power. John said Jesus performed this first sign in Cana. What is a sign? When you're traveling down the highway and you see a road sign, the sign is always pointing you towards something that's about to occur like a school zone or a curve in the road, so you better get prepared. But signs are not always negative. If you're traveling down the highway, there are also positive signs, like Olive Garden ahead. (laughs) Now, there are seven recorded signs in John's gospel. They are the turning of water into wine, the healing at a distance of the son of a high official at Herod's court, the healing of a lame man on the Sabbath, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water on the Sea of Galilee, the healing of the man blind from birth, and finally, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. However, this first miracle did something in his disciples. Verse 14 tells us that it revealed his glory and it gave them a stronger foundation for their faith. Now, although miracles alone are insufficient evidence for declaring Jesus to be the son of God. Now, why would I say that? Listen to 2 Thessalonians 2.9. It reads, The coming of the lawless one according to the working of Satan with all powers, signs, and lying wonders. That verse teaches us that Satan can also perform certain miracles, signs, and wonders. But the cumulative effect for the disciples of having miracle after miracle, along with the addition of observing his perfectly sinless life, would certainly convince them of his deity. The disciples had to begin somewhere. And so over the months, their faith deepened as they got to know Jesus better. John then tells us that Jesus and his family and his disciples went to Capernaum and stayed a few days. We are given no additional info as to what they did during that time. Now, in verse 13, we are told the time of the Passover was near, and so Jesus and his disciples went up to Jerusalem. Now, this is where things start to get really interesting. Now, keep in mind the event took place at the Passover. There are three Passovers mentioned in the book of John, John 2, John 6, and John 12. Okay, what happened at the Passover? Now, the Passover is linked with another feast that took place seven days later called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, if you recall, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Jews had to go through their house and make sure that no leaven was to be found anywhere in their house they would search and scour their house to make sure that no leaven was to be found because leaven is always a symbol of evil and sin. So isn't this interesting that during this time, Jesus goes through his father's house and is searching for and driving out the leaven. It's a perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament regulation. Now please get this next part because it's very important for us to understand. According to the law of Moses, attendance was mandatory to this feast for all Jewish men dwelling in Israel. I think we need to understand the mandatoriness. That's not a real word. I just made it up. Feel free to use it. But it was a mandatory thing. Can you imagine how excited these people would have been to make the journey to come to the city of Jerusalem for the Passover? Can you believe it, Maude? We're actually here. Now, we need to know that what these religious leaders are doing is they are taking advantage of these people who are coming and obeying something that is mandatory by God. They are taking advantage of God's word and God's people just to satisfy their greed. Verse 14, please. And he found in the temple, those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. Estimates range that there were somewhere between one and 2.5 million people who would descend upon the city during the time of Passover. Now the law required that each family offer an animal sacrifice during this time. They would have to bring the animal that was without spot and blemish. And it was a picture of Jesus who would die for our sins also having no spot or blemish. This means they would have to bring their best animal. They just couldn't look at their flock and bring old Bessie, who was in such bad shape she might not even survive the trip. And perhaps someone there had thought, you know, it has to be hard for these people to travel all this distance and to bring an animal for sacrifice. Why don't we just provide them the animals when they get here? Maybe in the beginning their motives were good, but it wasn't too long before a shrewd businessman, remember these are Jews, he may have thought, you know, I see an opportunity for a fortune here. Thus, the oxen, sheep, and doves brought by the people to sacrifice at the temple would be, would be inspected by the priest, and they would be usually declared unfit for sacrifice due to some microscopic flaw or blemish. Worshippers were then instructed to the pre-approved animals from the stalls in the courtyard, but here's the rub. The prices for these animals were outrageous. So the priests were making a killing off of the unsuspecting supplicants. It's a good thing that type of crookedness no longer goes on, says pastor Bill with his tongue planted firmly in his cheek. In addition to that, since these are Jews coming from all over the world, many of them would have different types of currency. But not to worry. There would be money changers who would gladly exchange your money so you could buy the sacrifice that you needed. Now, of course, there would be a fee attached to this also. They would exchange your money, but the exchange rate was believed to be somewhere between 12 and 17%. Some historians say that some of them were charging up to 50% as an exchange rate. They didn't care if you were rich or poor. They were equal opportunity crooks. This is like the early version of the loan sharks who'd have names like Frankie the Nose. Now imagine this. This week you get a one call from us saying the leadership of Calvary Chapel has decided we will no longer accept US currency of any kind. Instead, for your tithes and offerings, we will now only accept Calvary Bucks. One dollar and seventy five cents will buy you one Calvary buck. Oh, and one last thing, you must at least match what you gave last year. Otherwise, you need to find another church. Please see John Visco after the service. <clears throat> How violated would that make you feel? That's kind of what's going on here. But the real tragedy is that the business was carried on the court of the Gentiles in the temple. Why is that so bad? The reason is this is the place where the Jews should have been meeting the Gentiles and telling them about the one true God. But sadly, any Gentile searching for the truth would not likely find it among these religious merchants at the temple. According to the historian Josephus, at the time of Christ, these money-changing booths were all owned by the family of the high priest, Caiaphas. And he estimates he was making somewhere around $3 million a year on every Passover. Things haven't changed. Even today, if you go to Israel, there are people there with absolutely no scruples whatsoever. I heard one preacher said that when he was in Israel, he went to one town for which a fee would show you the skull of John the Baptist. When the preacher told him a guy in another town had said the same thing without missing a beat, the man said, oh, that was John when he was a teenager. (laughs) Right now, there are guys on TV who are multimillionaires who are telling widows on a fixed income that they don't give right now. Their ministry is not going to last through the month. To which I say, good, see ya. Always remember, God will provide in the places that he guides. Look at verse 15 with me. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Now this event is often used by skeptics who doubt the veracity of scripture because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all place the cleansing near the end of the ministry of Christ. But here in our account, John places it at the beginning. So which is it? The end or the beginning? As I've examined the text together, I've come to the same conclusion of most scholars who believe that there was not one, but two temple cleansings. There is enough differences to suggest that Jesus performed a temple cleansing at both the beginning and the end of his ministry. And the last one sort of fomented the wrath of the Jews, which led to his crucifixion. Now, most Americans are familiar with a painting by a uh, Warner Solomon be- called The Head of Christ. This picture is commonly found in nursing homes or on memorial cards that they give out at the funeral homes. Solomon's portrayal is an easy one of a caricatured meek and mild Jesus. And though perhaps depicting his approachability and his kindness towards children, such pictures can often lead us with a lopsided sentimental impression of who Jesus really was. Most paintings and statues of Jesus makes me feel sorry for him. He usually has this Spaced out look on his face, like either he's on drugs or he's been watching the Weather Channel for 10 straight hours. His head is tilted to one side and his eyes peer longingly into another world. He's usually limp, pale, and emaciated. You know, just like all the carpenters I bet you know. He doesn't look anything like the battle scarred Demon Slayer who turns over tables and makes a whip of cords. We need to remember that Jesus was not only a friend of sinners who tickled children sitting in his lap. He was also a radical, convicting, and sometimes even a frightening character. It's true. He is the gentle, loving shepherd, but he's also the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so the head of Christ's painting is a far cry From the clearing, storm-calming Jesus, who could evoke terrified responses like, Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? And yet, there are some Christians who don't like the picture of Jesus cleansing the temple in hot, holy anger. But we can't pick and choose only the attributes of God we like and assemble him in any fashion that we prefer. He is not a spiritual Mr. Potato Head. But we also can't use this as an example of it being okay to be a hothead. It's funny to me the verses that non-Christians like to use to justify their sinful behavior. If they are drunks, they go to John chapter two where Jesus turned water into wine. If they have a bad temper, they also come to this chapter citing Jesus cleansing the temple in anger. And if they think you are judging them, they all have Matthew 7:1 memorized, which tells you to judge not. Well, actually, that's not what it says if you don't want to read the whole chapter. But who wants to get hung up on little details, right? Ephesians 4:26 commands us to be angry. You think, finally, great, a command I can easily obey. But wait, there's more. It says, be angry and yet do not sin. Jesus provides a perfect example of what this means. Although he acted with great strength and firmness, he was never out of control. There is such a thing as righteous anger. For instance, we are told that God is jealous over his people, which can cause him to become angry. Now, those claiming that God's jealousy is petty and constricting might liken God to a husband who won't even let his wife talk to another man. A more appropriate analogy, however, is a husband who is concerned that his wife is being drawn emotionally towards another man, and he wants to protect the intimacy of his marriage, which is in the best interest of both his wife and their marriage. Well, in this case, for 30 years, it's recorded that Jesus did really nothing that we know of. Then for three years, he stormed every time he went down to Jerusalem. Josephus says he tore through the temple courts like a madman. We hear nothing about that kind of Christ today. The meek and mild Jesus portrayed today can make us lose altogether the true meaning of what the cross was. R.C.H. Linsky writes this, the stern and holy Christ, the indignant mighty Messiah, the messenger of the covenant of whom it is written, He shall purify the sons of levi and purge them as gold and silver that he may offer unto the lord an offering of righteousness is not agreeable to those who only want a soft and sweet christ but john's record here portrays the fiery zeal of jesus which came with such sudden and tremendous effectiveness that before this unknown man who had no further authority than his own person and word the crowd of money changers and traders who thought they were fully within their rights when conducting their business in the temple, fled helter-skelter like a group of naughty boys, quote. Incidentally, verse 16 is also a play on another verse. The last verse of the book of Zechariah states, Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day there shall be no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Now that word Canaanite comes from the Hebrew word that actually is the word for merchant. So it could be rightly translated that in the temple there would not be a godless wicked man carrying on his business in that holy place. It would literally read, Stop making my father's house a house of Canaanites. Now here the story is quite a contrast to what has happened earlier in the chapter. At the wedding, Jesus sat down at a table. Now he's throwing tables. And can he work quietly and privately? Here he's reacting conspicuously and publicly. At the wedding feast, the emphasis was on joy. Here the emphasis is on judgment. We need to always keep in mind, if you write down anything, write this down. Jesus is always infinitely holy, but he's also always inflexibly righteous. What about us? What about our temples? With our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit, are there things in our lives, in our temples, that is ripping us off? Just as surely as the priests and money changers were ripping off people in Jesus' day. You see, if I'm going to have joy, the Lord wants to drive out the sin of my life that is ripping me off. You see, joy and judgment walk hand in hand. For without joy, judgment would be unbearable. But without judgment, sin would run rampant. Yes, there is pleasure in sin for a season, but it is always followed, always followed by death and destruction. Therefore the Lord would lovingly say to you and to me, I want to go through your life, overturn the tables and drive out the cattle of sin, so you won't be ripped off from what I want to do in you and through you. Verse 17. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. They are remembering Psalm 69. And speaking of Jesus, it says, zeal for your house has eaten me up. As I said at the beginning, there is godly zeal and there is misguided zeal. Misguided zeal will cause you to fly airplanes into buildings. The whole thing Jesus does is a partial fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3 the final fulfillment which will occur in the millennial age. Now, as I read this, think of Jesus cleansing the temple and how this passage in Malachi applies. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. As Psalm 69.9 was brought to their remembrance, the disciples suddenly realized Jesus' passion for the temple. So, too. Just to reiterate, Jesus is zealous and passionate about the spiritual temple that is within us. We are his temple not only individually, but also corporately. And as his corporate temple, I think we as a church exist for really just three reasons. The first reason this church exists is for the exaltation for worshiping and extolling the Lord. Why? Because all things were made by him and for him, including the church. Therefore, the church exists for the Lord's pleasure. The second reason the church exists is for edification. The church exists to edify the saints, to build them up, and to bring them into maturity for the fullness of the stature of Christ. Now, how does that happen? By seeing Jesus through the study of the scriptures. I'm convinced that the greatest single need in the church today is a serious and consistent study of the word of God. The third and final reason the church exists is for evangelization. The inevitable result of exaltation and edification will be evangelization. Why would I say that? Because healthy sheep just naturally reproduce. Some of you are here this morning because other people in this church invited you. If sheep are properly fed and tended to, the shepherd had better make room because baby lambs are not far behind. Acts 6-7 declares that when the word increased, the number of disciples multiplied. That is why the reason we meet together is not primarily for the purpose of evangelism. Evangelism is just the effect exaltation and edification are the cause as we finish up this morning in an article entitled zeal for your house will consume bob i think it fits perfectly here it begins our church is in the heart of the city so along with the great opportunities also come many challenges for example our church building has been tagged a number of times by being spray painted with local gang signs or the initials of the culprits involved. A few years ago our worship leader Bob Olson was in his office at the back of the sanctuary when he heard strange noises in the alley. Tired of having bad things happen to his place of worship, Bob decided to act. He burst into the alley through a barred door that had not been opened for many years. There stood two teenagers holding spray cans initially in the building. What are you doing? He yelled, despite their only being 15 feet away. They stood up and acted tough. One answered back, What are you going to do about it, old man? Please realize that Bob's hair is thinning and he's in his fifties. There were two of them when they were young and strong. But as the scripture says, zeal for your house shall consume me. And so Bob started walking Right at them. They stood their ground for a moment, but then they turned and sprinted down the alley. But it didn't end there. Bob gave chase. <laughs> he chased them around one corner, down a residential street, across a yard, down another street, but Bob wouldn't stop. After a two block chase, he leapt at the slower of the two guys, grabbed his jacket, And pulled him to the ground. The guy guy struggled free, but not before leaving his jacket and his spray paint in the hands of Bob. The article finishes by saying, although the police caught the two of them on the next block, they might have been relieved to be away from the passionate worshiper with the thinning gray hair. And Father, we want to have the right kind of zeal for you. And I worry in my own life, I have zeal for so many other things that are temporal and are not going to last. I pray you would work in my heart, Lord. Before these people, I admit that. I want to have true godly zeal for you, which is the best way to live a human life. I pray, Father, you would do that work in everyone represented here today. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. This will be in the first day of the month. We'll have us-